Hello, you. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you very much for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. This weekend, Spencer Matthews joins me to discuss the new Disney Plus documentary, Finding Michael. Chris McCausland is on tour and speaks to me about Speaky Blinder. And Harry Hill is at the West End with his production, Tony, the Tony Blair Rock Opera. Show chef Martha is feeling very sweet. She has two desserts ready, including something special for Mother's Day. And there's a round of Word Up. Who would it be? But before all of that, Maria and I have some dilemmas to deliberate in Graham's Guide. Here's Maria to kick us off. Boys and girls, surely. <laughs> the boys and the boys. I'm good to, I just have to say, Graham, well done last night. I loved you as the head judge, um, finding people for Eurovision. And well done to Comic Relief. I think it's 32 million and rising. I was just saying earlier, it is amazing because every year you kind of think, oh, this is the year. This is the year that people will just tighten their belts and go, you know what? There isn't enough to go around. And every year people are just so phenomenally uh, generous. So 32 million. Yes. Well done, everyone who helped raise that. Just incredible, incredible. Hey, Graham, Uh, since I last saw you... Mm-hmm. Um, I have been on a road trip with my friend Paddy all around Sussex. Oh, no, no, Sussex. I live in Sussex. All around Suffolk. <laughs> I have been to Darsham and Deddingham and Dunwich. I stuck to the Ds and then I did the Ws and we went to Worlington and Woodford. And it was lovely because spring is a springing. And we stayed with friends who have spring lambs and goats and chickens and... Being on a sort of farm is just, it's the circle of life, Graham. I don't want to sound too twitty about this, but it was so gorgeous and the sun shone and, ah, it was lovely. Whilst I missed you, of course, last weekend. Of course. It was very nice to be away. And did did someone film this? Was there a reason for this? (laughs) Graham, not everything has to be filmed in life. Sometimes you film it in your mind. For future, when you're dotty in your dotage and you think, I remember those times I went to villages beginning with D and W. It just had a real whiff of Antiques Roadshow, that's all. (laughs) Are you referring to me as an antique? How very dare you. Um, No, that does sound lovely. And did you do anything for uh, St Patrick's Day yesterday? Surely you knitted a green jumper. Surely I needed a green... I spray-painted a green jumper. Does that any help? Uh, no, I've got enough green in my house at the moment. I did have a pint of your finest Guinness. You? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I, I ignored it. Uh, because I have such terrible memories of St. Patrick's Day. Because growing up, St. Patrick, you know, we'd be, we'd be watching the television in Ireland and we'd see everyone all around the world having great times and parties. And back then, uh, St. Patrick's Day was just like the longest Sunday Ever. It was just so dull. It was always raining. There'd be some damp girl guides walking down a street. <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> uh, so uh, for me, it never it never conjures joy or celebration. I always think of it no, just well, like Christmas, Christmas with no presents. I'm going to be taking away your Irish passport as a result of that statement, Graham. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new format. <laughs> Are you allowed exactly. to keep your passport? Um, you like you like that. You like that. Um, and did you watch the Oscars? Um, I watched bits of it, but not you know live. Of course, what everybody waits for the sort of memes the following day, don't they? Um, yes. And I have to say, I, there was nothing particularly memorable. I think we can't oh. beat the slap, can we? Not that that was a good thing, but it was no. exciting. Uh, Angela Bassett's face when she lost was quite good. <laughs> yes. 
I do like the people's faces when they lost. I mean, I'm bored with people trying to put on a brave face. Even the boy who played Elvis. I can't remember his name now. Austin um, Butler. Thank you. Uh, he was very, very cross too. But um, I think you should be allowed to be cross. You know, it's a big deal and you should be allowed to throw yourself to the floor and wail and scream like a toddler. Yeah, I agree. I remember watching um, when they did the American X Factor once, there was a, a young girl, she was 13 or something in it, and uh, she got the boot one week. And you know the way normally they kind of go, thank you for this opportunity and da-da-da. No, <laughs> she just went ballistic and screaming at her mother in the audience going, you promised me it would be all right. <laughs> and I just thought everyone should, everyone should do that when they get booted out for competition or lose. Uh, Maria, <laughs> gather your letters, yeah. gather your letters. Yeah. It's time for Virgin Radio. Uh, let's go. Letter one. Go on, go on. Hey. Okay. Dear Graham and Maria, my friend Jack, not his real name, has endured a torrid couple of years, coming close to almost losing his life in his line of work. The injuries he sustained have left him with additional issues on top of severe existing health problems and disorders. Jack has recently bought a lovely converted barn in a beautiful rural setting, situated on land owned by a dairy farmer who lives with his wife and sons close by. Jack is in his element. As a keen animal lover with farming experience and spends most days visiting the cows, feeding the chickens and playing with Bessie, the German Shepherd farm dog, who sadly lives outdoors 24-7, outside Jack's house. The dilemma is Jack is noticing more and more that the animals don't appear to be particularly well looked after. He found a newly born calf left on its own without water or bedding and he's found a few dead cows and calves too. Bessie the dog has also become besotted with Jack as he plays Paul with her daily and she's not had her pen cleaned out for weeks. It's triggering Jack's anxiety and he's becoming increasingly despondent after his walks if he sees something disturbing. Should he attempt a tactful conversation with the farmer and offer to look after Bessie's mess? He's reluctant to uh, to risk alienating the family if he interferes, so is almost resigned to keeping quiet, but he's concerned it'll only be a matter of time before he feels compelled to say something. What do you suggest in this sensitive situation? And that is from Jane in St. Helens. Oh, Jane in St. Helens, this is a difficult one. Poor Jack, and he's, you know, got his lovely idyll in the countryside. I'm a bit sort of concerned about he's got this house and but he's on the farmer's land. Um, so, I mean, he must have designated land of his own also. So basically, when he's going around looking at things, he's now on the farmer's lands. This is a difficult situation and could be problematic in the future. Now, I think uh, Jack, as we're calling him, uh, it's helping him to be outside with the animals, as I was just talking about, animals and chickens and goats and cows and so on. And and also Bess the dog. Jess? Bess. Bessie. Yes. Um, so <laughs> I would say to you, Jane in St. Helens, why don't you get Jack, as he's clearly not working, to offer to help the farmer? It could well be that the farmer is overwhelmed. We all know how difficult it is for farming these days. The farmer is overwhelmed by the chores involved. I just think, you know, getting involved, teaching a you know, grandmother to suck eggs about farming is not advisable. So if he says, I will 
give you four hours a day or whatever, and I will help. I will lift bales of hay and I will feed the things and so that. And in so doing, he can sort of inveigle himself into... If Bess's little pen, outside pen, is outside Jack's house, then he could kind of clean it out. No one's going to notice by the sounds of it. I think it's slowly, slowly Jack must go on this one and it will help him and help the farmer without needing a confrontation or saying, I don't think these animals are well cared for. I'm going to report you. I know that's further down the line. This is difficult. He's found his lovely converted barn and it's idyllic and he could help the farmer and he can leave it there and do things very, very slowly and gently. What do you think, Graham? No, I totally agree. Whatever he does has to be slowly, slowly, slowly. But one, barn conversion's lovely idea, but the barn is always beside a farm. That's why there's a barn there. So you are kind of stuck in this situation of being quite close to someone else, even though you're in the rural idyll. I, I think there's something kind of dark here because no farmer would be like this. I mean, because, you know, this isn't about cruelty to animals. It's about business. You know, calves and cows are worth a lot of money. No farmer's just going to, you know, he's found a few dead cows. I mean, that sounds sort of, I'm sort of, that's sort of incredible. So I, I kind of think, what's going on here? Is this farmer having some sort of breakdown? Or is he ill? What is going on? Because I can't imagine uh, a farmer, and obviously this has been in the, you know, the family for a long time because he's now selling the barn and land and stuff. So it, he's been there a while. It's not like he's a brand new, he's just come from London to decide to be a farmer and he's really bad at it. Um, You know, even things like Bessie, the German Shepherd dog, if you're a farm dog, how come it's available to play ball with Jack all day it just it a lot of this doesn't add up I think something no. quite dark is going on in this farm um, but, where Graham, he, but I don't know I don't know how Jack can get to the bottom of that yes I mean he, he doesn't play with Bessie all day he plays with her daily so you know a couple of hours here and there I mean it's you know, cows do die on farms and it might be that he's not found the dead cows but he's witnessed them or something you know cows die calves too um, farming, it's really the circle of life. It's not always pleasant. It's not, you know, always Anne of Green Gables. So yeah. we may be um, exaggerating a little bit here and farm dogs do live outside. But I don't know about the darkness. I just think this farmer sounds like he's overwhelmed and also probably hasn't got the money. As you say, he's sold his barn, he's selling land, etc. So I just think Jack could... Jack could confide in the farmer as well about his own anxieties and difficulties. I think there's two people here who are both suffering. And I think two people together can maybe get on top of this, but it's a slow process. In fact, that's a good idea. If he went to the farmer and said, you would be helping me if you let me help you, um, yes. maybe that would be an, that would be a nice way round. Whereas it wouldn't, you are not suggesting the farmer it can't do his job, even though, I mean, you're finding a few dead cows. It just seems, I just yeah, bits of this just do not add up. I, I, mm. I worry for the situation that, that they're all in because, you know, whatever happens, Jack's sitting in a barn in the middle of this. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a 
weird one. Dev responses bar one. And now often my favourite responders will get a lovely treat, an edible treat. But for the weekend that's in it, it's a non-edible treat. It's a Mother's Day Foundation bouquet with heart decoration. Tell us more, Graham. I can't quite visualise it. Well, it's a beautiful mix of soft pink cream and white foundation flowers, including roses, stalks, uh, something else, and something else. <laughs> <laughs> Big word flowers. Uh, this bouquet comes with a beaded pink heart keepsake handmade by the Upid and Satubo community groups in Kenya, uh, making it the perfect gift that gives back. Uh, you can also get it in store. Okay, it's a Mother's Day Foundation book of heart decoration. I'm looking at a picture. It looks very, 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 very nice indeed. Uh, Ian in Preston says, I think Jack must ask the farmer before doing anything. He can start by offering to help clean the dog's hutch as a thank you for being allowed to play with the dog. But Jack will have to accept if the farmer says no or sets conditions. That is true. Uh, Caroline says, I'd urge him to contact the RSPCA or local animal health department. They are best placed to give advice and maybe even help the farmer. He can do this anonymously. I wouldn't advise that he starts to take on any responsibility for the animals, as if things do escalate in the future, he may be deemed responsible for them and be liable to prosecution. Oh, Caroline. Okay. Um all right if you say so uh, jackie in hellsborough i think he could approach the other local farmers to suss out the situation they would be able to help broach the subject of animal husbandry i was thinking that too because the neighbors must know if there's other, something else going on like i i do think mental health issues because it's it's so dark and strange um Angie from Gorleston says, please, please call the RSPCA for advice and raise the concerns there. It would be anonymous and would keep Jack safe. Of course, offer support to the farmer, but firstly, ensure the animal's welfare is upheld. The farmer has, organization, has an organisation that they can contact for support if struggling. Maybe Jack can share his own mental health difficulties with the farmer and see if, if he has indeed got issues of his own. Good luck, Jack. And Dean from Leicester says, um, Hi, Graham Maria. I work for NFU Mutual and we do a lot of work with charities for farmers' mental health. It's a really big problem in the UK given how hard farmers work, the pressures they are under financially and how lonely a profession it can be. We have a charitable trust, but there are many others, including AHDB and Yellow Wellies. If this chap could check in on the farmer and pass on details for the help they can get. Dean, thank you so much for that. And we'll pass all the details of these organisations on to Jane and she can uh, let Jack know uh, about these organisations. Great to know they're out there. Uh, I tell you what, for, for just all that practical advice, uh, let's give the Mother's Day Foundation bouquet with heart decoration uh, to Dean from Leicester. Graham's Guide. Uh, Maria, uh, do you have a second yes. problem, please? Dear Graham and Maria, Please help. This is so bizarre, Graham. I'm just telling you that up front. Dear Graham and Maria, please help. My wife and I had a falling out at breakfast, as I was quite grumpy in general. I asked ChatGPT to write her a letter of apology, and I sent it to her. She thought the joke was that it was in the style of a template letter, and that, in fact, I had written it, and she loved the sentiments. She asked if I wrote the letter, should I admit that I delegated my apology to a machine or lie and claim the horribly general and apparently heartfelt prose as my own? Here is the letter. Dear, in brackets, wife's name. 
I am writing this letter to apologise for my behaviour lately. I have been feeling very tired and grumpy and unfortunately I have taken my frustrations out on you. I know that it is not fair to you and I am deeply sorry for any hurt or inconvenience that I may have caused. I want you to know that I value our relationship and appreciate all that you do for me. I understand that my behaviour has been unacceptable and that it has caused you unnecessary stress and worry. Please know that it was not my intention to make you feel this way and I am committed to making things right. I promise to work on managing my emotions better, to communicate more effectively and to be more mindful of your needs. You deserve nothing but the best from me and I am willing to do whatever it takes to make things right between us. Thank you for your patience and understanding. I love you and I'm grateful for all that you do. Sincerely, person's name. And that, Graham, is from Peter in Edinburgh. Peter in Edinburgh, can I just say without contradiction, you are an idiot. Why not? <laughs> why, why not just write your wife a letter yourself? Are you so incapable of making up after an argument? Even better, not write her a letter, not send her an email. Have a conversation with her. You've had you were grumpy in the breakfast time, by tea time when you come home from work. A nice bottle of wine, some flowers, chocolates, and a much calmer and nicer Peter. I mean, this is madness. It sounds to me when you say, should I tell her that I gave it up to a chatbot? You, it sounds like you've already said, I did it myself. Because when she asks, what did you say? No, I chatbotted it. Uh, you've, you've already said, yes, I did it. And it was a funny joke to do it in the template. So, you know, you've accepted thanks for this. She's happy with it. She thought it was a funny joke that it was in template form. If you now say, I'm sorry, that was a lie. And she then there's another argument ensues because she says what I've just said, which is, why can't you just speak to me like a normal person? You utter, utter swear word. Graham. Ooh, I, I wondered where we were going there. Uh, I think Peter in Edinburgh is delighted with himself. He thinks this is so funny. And really, he's just sent this in to us so we can go, oh, Peter, what a card. You're so funny. Um, uh, but really, I mean, I'm with you. Just, I mean, why didn't you write your own letter? I mean, and also, you know, this idea, oh, should I? Should I fess up? Did, like, what did you say when she asked? Did you go, I'll let yeah. you know later. I, I have to think about my answer. <laughs> Clearly, I have to write you to Graham already... and Maria. <laughs> yes, I, I'll be. I'll get back to you on that. Uh, so clearly, you've already told your lie. If you've got away with this, one, you're an idiot. You're married to an idiot. And uh, two, uh, if you've got away with it, then keep shum and and you know let sleeping dogs lie, etc. Uh, but seriously, you know, you've you've turned what was just a breakfast argument into a much bigger thing now because you just seem i mean yeah if if she if she ever goes on something and sees templates and realizes oh hang on that letter i got that i thought he wrote um in fact he just nicked or is that how it works i don't i don't even know how this well, chatbot thing works Graham, that's what I wanted to know, what chat GPT is, because we are Luddites and super old. So, I mean, does does do computers do everything for you? I mean, it's not a bad letter, but it sounds like you're writing to your boss or somebody. Well, what's bad about it is, OK, I, I've, I'm going to pick holes in the letter. So to go like, oh, I love you and I, you know, I'll do anything. I deserve better, blah, blah, blah. And then to end it with sincerely. 
your name. See that make that immediately you go what? That's so, that's just stupid. Uh, you would you wouldn't do that. So yes, no. computer has failed. I say computer says no in this instance. And, yeah. you, and Maria says no, and Graham says no. Yes, the listeners, I imagine, will come down like a ton of bricks on uh, Peter on this. And again, my favourite responders will be getting that lovely bouquet, the Mother's Day Foundation bouquet with heart decoration, courtesy of Waitrose. Uh, Laura in Penrith. Peter, you are the epitome of the endemic of people who can't think for themselves. You have a problem, so you ask artificial intelligence to solve it. That then creates another problem, so you write into Graham and Maria to solve it. <laughs> that sounds even worse, doesn't it? We're not even artificial intelligence. <laughs> uh, don't reopen the scab with your wife and let the letter go now. Going forward, try thinking for yourself authentically. It's why your wife married you. I mean, Laura, we're all asking that question. Why, why did the wife marry him? Uh, Jonas from Kingston says I think Peter from Edinburgh should ask chat GBT uh, what to do indeed yes it got him into this mess get him out of it Peter a letter really whether or not you wrote it yourself how detached and insincere it is how your wife could be pleased with that is beyond belief you sound so emotionally immature and yes an idiot oh dear arguments happen but you should tell your wife how the letter was written whilst showing genuine remorse giving a big warm hug a heartfelt apology and making genuine effort to be the husband she deserved and that's from carol in long eaton what husband did she deserve uh, but Peter, all is at last. An anonymous text has come in. From Peter in Edinburgh, I imagine. Uh, Peter is a genius. Please can you share the chatbot link or share a copy of the letter in Instagram, please. We'll look into it. We'll look into it. In the meantime, I am going to give that bouquet, the Mother's Day uh, Foundation uh, bouquet um, with heart decoration, courtesy of Waitrose, to... Carol in Long Eaton. Yes, I am. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. And now, Disney Plus are currently streaming a documentary called Finding Michael. It is a visually beautiful uh, and really emotionally powerful documentary. And it was created by my first guest, Spencer Matthews. Hello, Spencer. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. Uh, no, thank you. Thank you for this film. And before we get to the, the film, I just want to talk about uh, Michael a bit. So Michael was your brother, um, but quite, quite a bit older than you, right? Yeah, so Michael uh, was 22 uh, when he disappeared on, on Mount Everest. I was just 10 at the time and, you know, we enjoyed a very close relationship. And what are your memories of that time? Because presumably the family was so excited because did had you found did you find out that he had reached the summit be, before you got the terrible news? Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember Michael leaving for Everest at the time. Obviously, I was um, I was just a kid and, um, you know, remember him fondly kind of going off to, to conquer his dreams. You know, he'd recently done Aconcagua before it and, you know, was quite an accomplished climber for his age. And. Uh, yeah, we 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 knew that he had summited Everest. We'd received that news, and then um, when he did not return to Camp Four, so in the hours you know after his summit attempt, um, he went missing, and we received that news a day kind of later. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm always I've always been quite thankful that I was only ten because it didn't hit me in the yeah. same way that it hit others, you know. But my I remember my family um, being you know irreparably changed and 
And how long was hope alive for, if you know what I mean? You know, I mean, I know you were only a kid, but talking to your family, did, did hope remain for days or was, did people kind of realise very early on that that was it? I think my, my family knew uh, that Michael was, was dead. Um, you know, people don't tend to survive the night on Everest. There has been one or two cases of, of somebody surviving the night, but ordinarily, you know, typically speaking, it, it, that, that, would be, that would be curtains. Um, so the, the hope was not alive for very long. Me being a kid, um, the hope was alive for me for, well, what felt like a, a very long time. I never truly believed um, that Michael had, had lost his life, of course, until plenty of time passed and we had a memorial service. But even then, obviously, in the absence of a body, yeah. um, you know, my, my, my kind of young juvenile mind always, you know, played tricks on me that perhaps one day I would see him again. And what was that like for you growing up? Because Michael was sort of fixed in time as this sort of hero, a kind of tragic figure. Did you feel like you were under his shadow or what was it like? Um, you know, it was, it was, I never fully processed Mike's death actually until what feels like, you know, recent times. I think making this documentary and taking this journey and actually, you know, take, living on Everest for, for four and a half weeks and, and really coming to grips with with kind of brought me closer to him almost and, and has allowed me to process um, some, of, some of, you know, what happened to him. But, um, you know, I, I've always had Mike kind of on my shoulder for, for the majority of, of my life. And I like to think that he has been a guiding kind of figure for me. Well, let's talk about the film. Uh, Bear Grylls is an executive producer. Did, was it, did you go to him to... to to tell this story or did Disney come to you? How did this happen? Um, no, we had conversations with Bear before. Bear, so Bear was the the youngest Brit to, to reach the summit. So that's kind of what his uh, first book, Facing Up, was about. And we met around that time and I had spoken to Bear about Michael when I was a young teenager. And so we had this kind of bond that goes back um, many years and he was aware of who Michael was. Uh, and essentially when, you know, our paths of paths have crossed a little bit and when um, I was thinking about this and considering um, whether or not this was worthwhile and something that the family really wanted and trying to sum up the, the risks involved and, and the time uh, and, and costs etc. Uh, Bear was one of the first people that I spoke to about it and for his kind of sound guidance given that he's familiar with, with this kind of thing you know more than, than I am and he thought that it was certainly a story worth telling. And we both agreed that it would be, uh, all being well, um, a great legacy for Michael, which is certainly something that I feel, um, you know, he has lacked whilst I was growing up. I always thought that his bravery as, you know, the youngest Brit at the time to reach um, the summit of Mount Everest when he was just 22 has, has always kind of been overlooked in some of the, you know, really gripping, great conversations around this mountain. And you're absolutely right, because I, watching the documentary, the shock is that you, I hadn't heard of Michael before, because it is an amazing story and an amazing achievement. Um, how far up the mountain did you get? Cause you, so you go, you go to Nepal, you go to Mount Everest, and then you have this crack team that are going up to, to where he disappeared. How far did you go? I went to base camp and, and, and you know, it was very much uh, Bear's advice to, to remain at base camp. Um, and also just, you know, I have three children of my own now and 
uh, and a, an amazing wife and, and also my, my, my mother in particular and, and, you know, dad, I'm not sure would be too enamored by the thought of me climbing Everest. But not only that, it would just, you know, I, I would um, very much get in the way of this search and recovery team. They are... Um, their physiology is very different. The, the, the expedition was led by a gentleman called Nims Persia. Um, I don't know if, if you know him. I'm sure you maybe you do. He he has he holds the world record for having climbed the 14 highest mountains in the world in seven months, um, and, and is just a, a bit of a force of nature. I think you know that there's a you know maybe there's a time to climb Everest, but this certainly wouldn't have been that time. This was all about finding Michael. Because the film's already streaming on Disney Plus, uh, some listeners have uh, watched it. Spencer uh, Phil says hello, Spencer. I watched a documentary last night and I found it very brave and inspiring. Uh, Stuart in Leeds watched uh, incredible Spencer's incredible documentary and it was utterly poignant and beautiful. I obviously understand how important it was for him to make this film, but given how exceptional he and his team are in documentaries, will there be any other productions in the future? And presumably the success of this film means that people will be kind of trying to think of things for you to do. Um, I, well, firstly, thanks for the very kind messages. Um, just uh, focused on on this uh, for now, um, but who knows what the future holds. But thank you for the kind words. And in terms of making this film, I mean, I was struck how difficult was it like technically I mean base camp's one thing but up where the the climbers were the rescuers were I mean in terms of just cameras and sound and stuff how hard is it to film up there uh I'm incredibly hard and you know I think we're fortunate coming back to you know the the team um they were they're just you know brilliant uh people but also incredibly professional and you know I would, I would love to do more with them I think we had the great fortune and benefit of uh, an incredible director, Mr. Uh, Tom Beard, uh, but the team, you know, Rob and Andy on on director of photography and sound uh, were just fantastic. And then for the high altitude stuff, uh, one of the Sherpa was a gentleman called uh, Sunam, and you know he has a lot of experience with cameras at altitude. Uh, we also had a young gentleman from Scotland called Brody, um, who you know also was particularly talented with the camera up there. So no, we put a lot of time and effort into finding the best possible team uh, for the job and, you know, delighted to hear that people are enjoying the film. And, you know, as we are saying, emotionally, it is quite gruelling, this film, but it is so gorgeous. It is so beautiful the way it's filmed. I mean, not, and not just Mount Everest, but even the, the scenes in Scotland and things like it's or America. It's just, it's gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. And um, what was it like when you actually watched the film when you saw the footage from the high altitude all that stuff that you hadn't seen um i thought that you know they they'd done an amazing job i was obviously reviewing the footage uh that they were bringing down from the searchers um you know with them just in case uh, we were able to see things that perhaps we hadn't spotted on the drones uh, when they were filming it live um, but also it was a particularly special moment for me. I was able to see footage of my brother for the first time. Um, what led to making this film was that we were sent a, a photograph of a body on, on Mount Everest that looked as though it could be Michael. Um, so I got in touch with his climbing partner on the 1999 expedition and asked his opinion on whether or not he thought the body could be Mike. Um, and he made me aware of footage um, of Michael that he had recorded on that expedition leading up to moments, you know, just before his death. Uh, and I'd never seen it before because obviously I was 10 at the time. And so that had been, you know, probably shown to my family, but not to me. 
Uh, and I actually realized it was the first time I'd ever seen my brother on camera. You know, smartphones weren't a thing. Video cameras weren't really something that, you know, people used uh, in day-to-day -day life back then. So to see Michael and to have that footage uh, in the movie and, and kind of paralleled almost to, to running alongside my own expedition and, and having taken the exact same route as him was what I think made the film quite special. I know, it must have been so powerful for you to see him in, in that way. And one of the shocks as a viewer is like, that there are a lot of bodies on Mount Everest. I mean, there's a lot of unclaimed bodies up there. Did you know that? Were you aware of that before you went? Yeah, I mean, the, Everest has claimed the lives of over, over 300 people. And um, there have only been a few cases of successful body recovery from the mountain. Uh, many families choose to, to leave their, their loved ones on the mountain, you know, given the... Uh, beautiful environment in, in, in which you know they rest. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, seeing the bodies up close um, was, was something that uh, admittedly I haven't, I hadn't put much, much thought into. I, I was kind of uh, aware of the fact that a successful body recovery w would mean that I would, you know, come face to face with my brother's frozen corpse um and you know i think if anybody in the family were to do that it probably should be me i, I had suppressed a fair amount of emotion and as i said earlier you know i hadn't um you know that michael's death impacted me probably you know less painfully at the time than it did my my you know older siblings and, and parents just because of, of you know my juvenile way of thinking about it at the time you know i wasn't able to process it properly so I'd become comfortable with that, although I'm not sure that has ever happened before, you know, a sibling um, coming face to face with their frozen body yeah. uh, of the brother, you know, tw 20 odd years later. But um, it's something that I had to just prepare myself for and, and um, you know, I, I don't want to ruin the ending of the film. No, no. So please, um, yeah. please, you know, if it sounds interesting, do watch it. And tell me this, did you watch it, did you sit down as a family to watch this or did you kind of all watch it individually because it was just going to be too much for you all to watch together? Um, we watched We watched kind of separately watched rough cuts of it when it was, you know, nearly finished. And then uh, we all actually attended uh, a premiere that was at the Battersea Power Station. It's the first time I think we all saw it with... The full kind of you know uh, the the finished music score and on a large screen yeah. and we we were all together for that and um, that that night was <clears throat> it felt um, uh, you know I'm not a particularly emotional person actually um, but it felt a really special moment but also quite a nerve wracking one you know sharing uh, this is two years in the making this film so sharing it with I think there was 350 people there that evening just just felt. Um, you know, like something that obviously I wanted to do at that stage, but you know, the 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 idea of it not being, um, you know, giving Michael the legacy that I believe he deserves was um, just an interesting thought for me. Um, but I'm glad to say that you know that evening went quite well. Well, it's a beautiful thing to do for Michael, but also your your family. Uh, Finding Michael is the name of the documentary. It is streaming now on Disney Plus, and as you say, it's it's gorgeous, but it's also uh, a very emotional story. Spencer Matthews, thank you so much for coming in to see us. Take care now. Thanks Bye. so much, Graham. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose, food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. It, it is time to meet my second guest of the day. Currently touring the country with his show Speaky Blinder. It is top comic Chris McGawson. Hello, Chris. How are you doing, Graham? Are you good? 
I'm oh, I'm very well, but uh, hey, I wasn't thrilling people in St Albans last night. How was that? <laughs> it was uh, it was lovely. It was uh, it was it was chocker, and most importantly, it was uh, it was it was local. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wasn't that, oh, wasn't that nice? Oh, oh, you know when you can be home. For, when you can be home in an hour. Uh, <laughs> so, when you when you're doing a when you're doing a, a, a tour that's this long. I mean, it's 140 odd dates. When when you get these ones pop up, you you um, doesn't really matter what the audience is like. They go straight to the top of the list. <laughs> yeah, listen. Um, but what I mean, it is a hell of a tour. And so you're in Norwich on Tuesday, and then all around the place, and then you end up in Shepherd's Bush Empire. Yeah. Uh, that's the last one. It's the last one uh, in you... May, and we're filming it as well. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. Okay. Who who are you filming for? So we're fi- it's going to be on Channel Four. Um, so it will be, um, and that's not saying to people don't come and watch it because it'll be on the telly. It'll be an edited <laughs> yeah, version. You fool, Chris! On the... You fool! <laughs> <laughs> it'll be an edited version on the telly. So come along and um, and see all the bits that um, Channel Four didn't think they could broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you want, if you want to find out if Chris is coming near you, uh, if you just go to chrismacalson.allinword.com, uh, you can get tickets and information uh, there. When did this tour start so the tour started in april um and it's um as, as i say we're, we're, i'm over the 100 mark now so we're, we're on the last kind of the, the run-in and um, there's still some um, some dates with tickets available and um, but it was meant to start in march 2020 graham but um i'm lazy you know that's how it works and <laughs> it got, it's one of these ones it's one of these ones that got rearranged three times and um <sighs> Oh, it was it was meant to be 2020, then 2021, then 2022, and um, and it, it it meant that by the time that you know by the time it started, the tickets had been on sale since January 2020. There were people who'd had tickets to see me live for over two years, and I was starting the tour thinking. How do you live up to these kind of expectations? There's no, there's no way. Or, yeah. Or, or I hope these people remember that they've got tickets to come and see yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I had, I had tickets for two and a half years. I kept holding them to see Guns and Roses at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, right? And some people had tickets for the same length of time to see me at Swindon Arts Centre. That's- <laughs> <laughs> and tell me this, because you had to wait so long, by the time you were doing it, were you kind of going through the material thinking, oh, actually, that's that hasn't aged very well or yeah, I <laughs> that makes no it. sense anymore? I rewrote it, to be honest. And um, I mean, it's not like I didn't have a lot of time on my hands. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I think a lot of the nuts and bolts of it has, have stayed the same. And, and it, it, you know, it's a lot about family life and, and being a dad and stuff like that. So a lot of that's uh, changed. But there was... It, it, but I did rewrite rewrite the show at least as, you know just to make it feel um, feel fresh in in my yeah. own head as well you know you know what it's like you, 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 the worst thing you can feel is like you're doing something stale if you if you know what I mean um, so um, but it's it's been going really really good to be honest and um, I mean believe it or not but this finishes in May and the next tour starts in January the tickets aren't on sale for that yet but it's all in the diary and I've only just come up with a name for it but the people are like you're going straight back out and I'm like well I'm still in that post-Covid thing but just take it while it's there because you never know 
when you're gonna <laughs> yeah no when, listen yeah. yeah absolutely and, and am i right in thinking this is your 20th year in stand-up now 20 years yeah and and do you know what i mean that feeds into the the, the the next I decided to call the next tour Yonks because in, in one of the reviews of one of the articles about me, somebody called me an overnight success. And I was like, I've been doing this for twenty years. <laughs> it's a, that's the longest drawn out overnight success, isn't it? Um so um yeah, twenty years, but it's um it's it's been good, you know. It's 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 one of them things that a lot of people don't realise. You know that the 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 levels of stand up comedy, and that there is a whole you know there is a whole career out there before anyone gets to see you on the telly, um, and you can you know you, a lot a lot of good comedians out there making a living from it, and that's what I was doing for for donkeys really. I tell you, the last time I saw you was at uh, I think it was last year's BAFTA. You and Lee Mack. Oh yeah. You did that hilarious, <laughs> hilarious, hilarious bit. You really stole the show, the two of you. Um, yeah. But I read in an interview where the two of you had, because you, you were riffing on the fact that you couldn't read the autocue. Yeah. And, but uh, you had cold feet beforehand. Is that true? Do you know what? It's like because we, we, we kind of decided, because Lee lives down the road from me, we thought we'd get together, have a few coffees and actually write something rather than just turning up and winging it. And we came up with this kind of old school, you know, I don't want to, you know, you know, kind of put myself in a category of the two. Um, you know, but we we tried to replicate something that maybe like Morecambe and Wise, two Ronnies, proper old school double act sketch, um, and we thought it was hilarious. And then the next day, you look at it again, you go, "Do you think this is funny?" And then on the day, I was like, "Oh, Lee, I hope this is funny." And when we were about to walk out, you know, in, in front of literally everybody that could ever give you a job, the whole TV industry on live TV <laughs> with something we'd never done before, I literally turned to Lee and I said, "Oh, should we just jib this off and do the nominations?" And he went, "Don't you bail on me now." <laughs> <laughs> but as soon as you go out and um you know we got we, we delivered the one of the first lines from it which was just to set the premise and I didn't think there was a laugh in it and everyone just kind of got what the premise was going to be and laughed and in the, in your head you know what it's like you just go oh this is going to be fine um and it went really well didn't it yeah no, it was more than fine it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious it was very 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 funny a real highlight of the night uh, chris we were talking there about 20 years in the business so when you started i i you were in an interview talking about uh that when you started you kind of deliberately decided not to focus on your blindness in terms of your material is that right yeah so when, when i started doing stand-up i started doing stand-up because i loved stand-up i was I, like throughout the 90s like i i always had the videos on my christmas list and um and i was just a huge stand-up fan really and i I think probably, um, you know, Eddie Izzard was was my favourite comedian through the nineties, and um, so when I when I gave it a go, it was because I wanted to. It wasn't because I thought I had something I could rinse for comedy. It was really just because I liked, you know, people who who, who did stand up and did like a variety of, of 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 subject matter really, and so I I tried to just um, replicate that really and 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 write stand up that was just about everything, and also. Um, I think I wanted to really challenge people's preconceptions because it, it, and that sounds grander than probably what it, what it was in my head at the time. But I knew that like if I was sat in an audience and I came on stage, I would think in my head, oh, this is going to be 20 minutes of blind jokes, this isn't it? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't trying to like change the world or anything. Just in my head, I knew that. So I thought, well, I'm going to do the opposite and I'm not going to mention it. I'll do a joke at the beginning that kind of breaks the ice in the room and then I'll just move on and talk about everything from, I think I was doing stuff about giraffes and crocodiles and stuff like that. Um, and I, and I, I, you know, that's what I, that's what I did really. And, and I, I think, um, 
you know, as I got older and older, I mean, I'm 45 now and I look back and I think that probably part of that as well was I probably wasn't massively comfortable in my own skin in my 20s and I lost my sight very gradually. And it, it's, um, it, you know, it's not it, it's something that you've always got a, a level of denial towards or you, you're never really you know, massively comfortable with um, your you, you constantly changing situation. And also, I didn't really have a lot to say about it, but, you know, as I've got older, you get a bit more comfortable, you become a parent. And I think I've got more, a lot more original, interesting things to say that everyone can relate to to an extent, but then there's a little added twist on it, if you know what I mean. So it, I feel like yeah. I'm being more original and... and true to myself so even now in the tour it's 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 you know it's it's um uh, uh, not the the bulk of the show it's it's a part of it but i certainly talk about it now and i, I never used to and also i think in comedy it's great to have some sort of usp where people kind of go oh yeah he's that guy and that's the thing you know it, it's just yeah. useful i think yeah. it is yeah it, it certainly nowadays yeah i mean like i think back you know back when i've been doing it 10 years maybe i think me being blind on tv shows people didn't really want to they were like well how's he gonna do that you know, it's very visual. How's he gonna? How's he gonna play countdown on the uh, cat's countdown? Or how's he gonna do? Have I got news for you with the with the picture round or whatever? Um, and I think we're in a situation now where um, I, I think you, you know, once you get an opportunity, you prove yourself. But also, there's a little bit more of an obligation, isn't there, for people to uh, make a few little adjustments to accommodate people? Yeah, but also I watch you on panel shows, and I think, and I'm thinking, how do you do that? Because they're so hard panel shows to to. To, you know, to find yeah. your moment, to kind of know, okay, I can chip in my joke here. Yeah. And and to do that just listening, that must be really difficult. Do you know what, as well, I like, I mean, I, I think as well, because I don't take notes on with me, and I know a lot of people do, so a lot of people will write, like, jokes about the news or whatever, and um, they'll, get, they'll say a joke, and then they'll be looking at their notes under the table and not listening to what anyone else is saying. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of go on and, I, you know, if I'm doing If I Got News For You, they don't tell you what's coming up, but I will, I will kind of read the papers and I'll have some jokes in my head and I will probably forget over half of them. But what I forget, I, may, I think I probably make up for by listening to everybody else and um, being able to jump in on the back of it and, and banter a little bit more. And I think that probably um, that, that, that works. It gets a bit more of your personality across, you know, rather than just trying to crowbar yeah. in a joke. And it's not just stand-up on telly. You are now doing a new series, Channel 4. Is this The Wonders of the World I Can't See? It is, yeah. It's a travel show, because there's not enough of them on the telly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a travel show with a twist, though. It's, um, I mean, this this came from a genuine place, really. Of um, I've never really seen the point in going to, to the places that everyone goes to look at the wonderful thing. Um, what's the point in me going to stare at a wonder or have somebody describe it to me there when they could just sit on me couch and do it from a photo? Um so we, we thought we'd make a show where um, I go off with, I mean, we've done it with, uh, I went to Greece with Harry Hill and Rome with Tom Allen, uh, Jordan with Gus Khan and, and believe it or not, Niagara Falls with Lisa Tarbuck. What a treat that was. And, wow. um, and the idea was that they were going to drag me around and prove to me that it was worth me uh, me going there after all. And there's much more going on in these places than just staring at the thing that, that they're known for. Um, and it was, a, it was a proper laugh. I mean, me and Lisa are in... Um, Niagara Falls, we we had we had such a such a blast, and I've, you know, and it really does come across on the um, on the telly as well, you know. 
That does sound like a good time, Lisa Tarbuck and Niagara Falls. <laughs> and we could have had a good time in Scarborough, let's be honest. But... <laughs> she is a good time. She is a good time. Uh, listen, we're out of time. Uh, Chris McCauston, thank you so much for coming to see us. Speaky Blinder is the tour you're looking for. And you go to chrismacauston.com to get tickets to tours. Lovely, lovely, lovely to talking to you. Uh, good luck with the rest of the tour. Oh, Take care of yourself. Thanks so much for having us. Cheers. Stay right where you are. Harry Hill discusses his countrywide tour, Tony, the Tony Blair Rock Opera. And we have a round of Word Up. But first, morning, Martha. Good morning. Uh, now, Spencer Matthews got a seal on me. The celebrity has uh, wolfed some of what you made, Dan. <laughs> did, did, did he enjoy it? He he looked very pleased with himself, to be honest. He came into the kitchen asking for a banana and I was able to present him with <laughs> this whole presentation breakfast. And he came on a good day because often, as you know, we're making savoury <laughs> things that you don't necessarily want to eat at half past ten. But today... It was like a French toast, beautiful breakfast oh, dish. No spoilers. No spoilers. Well, no, no. Tell me. So, tell me what you've made. So, this is butter lacquered brioche toast with poached rhubarb and some candy, candied fennel seeds. Oh my goodness! Candied fennel seeds. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, because because I was I I knew that you were making this and I thought that sounds lovely, uh, but I was unclear when I would eat it whether whether it would be for breakfast or whether it would be a dessert. So it's <laughs> breakfast. It's it's a it's a fancy breakfast. Do you know what? You could definitely have it as either because it's definitely a a high sugar breakfast. It's a breakfast that would get you ready for a good a good day and maybe a Mother's Day breakfast. This would be a good one. <laughs> And is this the, you know, tis the season for rhubarb? It is indeed the season. The season for forced rhubarb. So the lovely bright pink um, shards that you find in the shops. And then in the summer, you get the green rhubarb. Um, you could use either for the recipe, but the pink obviously looks a lot nicer because it's it's beautiful. No, it, is, it absolutely does look gorgeous. What's the difference in, in taste? Is one of them sourer than the other? So they taste really similar, but it's more the texture which is different. So forced rhubarb is quite tender and soft and will hold itself together, whereas summer rhubarb is green and a little bit more kind of woody, a bit more stalky, <laughs> slightly less and slightly less enjoyable. <laughs> mm, lovely. Yeah, you really sold it well. I, I look forward to the summer version of this dish. <laughs> yeah, no, don't. <laughs> have this in the spring. <laughs> and tell me this, where do they force it? Do they force it in a shed or what do they do? Yeah, so they force it. Rhubarb is one of the most interesting vegetables or fruit. Actually, I don't know. Is it a vegetable? <laughs> a vegetable or a fruit? I don't know. Let's go with vegetable. But they grow it in the dark. And the okay. reason it's forced is because they have these little candles all around this dark shed and the rhubarb can see the light, so it forces its way out through the soil or whatever it grows in. You can tell I'm no farmer. But wow. <laughs> and it so it, it's grown by candle. Yeah, it's, it's quite romantic, to be honest. If you look at pictures of rhubarb growing, it's like, wow, that's beautiful. Wow, probably next door to some mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably doesn't smell quite as nice as I'm painting a picture in my mind. But... Yeah, because we, we don't know what it's growing in. But we're, <laughs> we're <laughs> Very good. And in terms of, you know, if somebody's thinking, oh, butter lacquered brioche toast with poached rhubarb, that sounds nice. Uh, if you wanted to make this for your mother tomorrow morning, uh, what time would you have to get up? So you'd be pleased to know that actually most of the steps should be up are properly done if you start the day before so you're actually listening at the perfect time she can get the ingredients start off the recipe and then the hands-on time tomorrow will be very minimal perfect for a little breakfast in bed only takes about 15 minutes 
Oh, fantastic. What we, like. we should say this recipe is by uh, Sue Scott. Yes, Sue Scott. It, it is a really yes. lovely recipe. And she's got a couple of other lovely breakfast recipes in the Waitrose Food magazine, like kimchi and cheese croissants and like poached eggs with honey and chilli yogurts. There's all sorts of lovely things if you're oh not goodness, fancying something sweet. <laughs> stop it. Stop it. Uh, here's what we do. Uh, now, I'm always nervous with you, Martha. You haven't. You're not, you're not expecting us to make brioche, are you? <laughs> No, don't worry. The brioche comes ready-made. It's all about Phew. the finishing process. Can you imagine? Okay, great. <laughs> you had to get up three days ago if you wanted to make brioche in time for Mother's Day. <laughs> Phew. Okay, that pressure is off. We've bought our brioche. Uh, what do we do first? So we're going to start with this lovely, it's got sticky rhubarb, almost a bit like a compote on the top. So we're going to start with that. You want to get this started ideally the night before. So you basically chop up your rhubarb into little little diamond shapes. That goes into a bowl with some sugar, the juice of an orange, and then some nice spices. So we've got cardamom pods going in there and some star anise. Cover that all up, mix it together, and then just leave it overnight. And all those lovely fragrances from the spice will kind of get into your rhubarb and make it really lovely and soft and sweet all the way through as well. So that goes to one side overnight. Then we're going to move on to our fennel seeds. So this, when you initially look at this, you think, oh, that looks like pistachio because it's got these green little flecks all over the top. But it's actually candied fennel seeds, which are... Something that I actually hadn't made before, so something something new for me and something a new flavour, but they are really delicious and really straightforward. So we're going to make a little sugar syrup in one saucepan with just a little bit of uh, cast sugar and water. Then in a separate pan, we're going to dry fry some fennel seeds and some sea salt. Once they're smelling a little toasty, we start adding in the syrup a teaspoon at a time, giving it a good mix, and it absorbs into the seeds and really brings out all of their flavour, and it coats them in this lovely sugary crystalline crumb. And they taste a little bit like aniseed, so they've got a really nice kind of topping consistency and it says in the recipe you can put them in a little pot and have them as a snack for the rest of the week if, if you so desire no but also it, it just it elevates the whole thing doesn't it because suddenly you feel very kind of top chef kind of master <laughs> chefy doing that don't you yeah. exactly very i mean good. sue scott has put in the description of the recipe that uh, the fennel seeds really push this dish into unabashed show-off territory which i completely agree with <laughs> Um, so you've no, that got, is true. Yeah. <laughs> completely true. So you've got your fennel seeds on one side. When you come to your next mornings, when you're ready to cook, we are going to get the rhubarb, put it into a pan, and we're just going to cook for four minutes because rhubarb is has a tendency to just disintegrate if you cook it too long. So we just want to cook it through but keep it whole. So that cooks four minutes, take it out, and then simmer the the rest of the liquid down to a lovely syrup. And then for the French toast, well, it's not actually French toast, this butter lacquered toast. I kind of mm. wanted to rename it buttercream toast because I think that kind of sums up what it is a little bit more. So you essentially are mixing butter with a little bit of icing sugar. Then we are taking a lovely loaf of Waitrose sliced brioche and covering both sides in this lovely sweet butter. Then it goes into a hot pan for a couple of minutes on each side to get this lovely caramelised, crispy edge, which hardens up as it cools. And it is really addictive. I think it's already been eaten by many people, including me in the kitchen, because it is just like mm, so crunchy. So then you assemble it on a plate, throw it all together, get your rhubarb on, your seeds, a little bit of yogurt on the side. And it's a really chefy but really tasty dish. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that. Butter lacquered brioche toast with poached rhubarb. You can get that recipe at the Waitrose Hub at waitrose.com slash showchef. And indeed, all Martha's recipes there. You can also check out the visuals on our socials at Virgin Radio UK. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning. Um, Martha, thank you very much. See you then. Bye-bye. Martha. Time to meet a Martha. And Martha's made something very special. Happy Mother's Day, Martha. Oh, why, thank you. Happy Mother's Day to you, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> um,
<laughs> I mean, as a, as a baker, the pressure from Mother's Day must be quite intense to come up with something special. I know. I feel like my mum will be listening right now thinking, am I going to get to see that cake? <laughs> am I seeing that cake today? I'll make it for you soon, mum, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You're making it for strangers. What about me? <laughs> I carried you for nine months. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what cake have you made for us on this special day? So this is a Mother's Day bunt cake and it is a cardamom and blood orange one. So a little bit fancy, but I love bunt cakes. Bunt, I looked up the meaning of it because I thought I say Thank this all you. the time. <laughs> I, say, <laughs> I say this all the time as a baker, but I'd actually never looked up. What does the word bunt actually mean? It basically is one of these tins that has an ornate pattern already in it and it makes a ring-shaped cake. But apparently bunt comes from the German word for gathering so these cakes are great because they're quite big so they're good when you have a big group of people around and you can slice them up but the best thing about a bundt cake is that it doesn't require loads and loads of decoration because all the decoration is done by the tin in the oven as it bakes so i love cakes like this because they're nice and simple and you can focus on the flavors I mean, I know what you mean, but it, you look at it and you kind of think, oh, do we have to cut it? Because it just, because you can't cut it, it's, you know, because it's the swirl thing, because it's got those kind of uh, waves, I don't know how you describe them, those ridges. Yes. You kind of think, oh, it, it, it seems such a pity to cut into it, but they're... <laughs> a little must. bit too pretty. We must. Too pretty yeah. to cut, but I, I reckon as soon as you've made that first slice, it will go pretty quick. <laughs> and uh, a little bird tells me, this recipe is... Martha's own. Oh, it is. It's in the, this weekend's Waitrose Weekend paper, right smack bang in the middle. Um, and yeah, it's a good, it's one of the best category recipes. Um, the best Mother's Day cake is quite a difficult recipe to, <laughs> to come up with to suit all mothers. But I hope this nice, subtly flavoured, but packs a punch of orange cake will suit mothers up and down the country and everyone else as well. I tell you, your mother will be opening that weekend newspaper. It, that cake will be laughing at her. <laughs> <laughs> my poor mum. <laughs> Where is it? Where's my cake? Where's my cake? I want to make cake. Um, and I, I, I know I always ask you these things, particularly with baking. I know you said you don't have to decorate this cake because I mean, you you have. It looks gorgeous. But uh, but how in terms of making it, how hard? Do you just is it a bit of stirring and shove it in the oven, or is it is more complicated than that? I genuinely think it is just a bit of stirring and shove it in the oven. I mean, I'm always hesitant to describe it like that because then I'll read the recipe out and you'll be like, oh, <laughs> there's a few additional steps in there. There's a few tiny little additional steps, but in theory, it's a really simple oil-based cake. So it's all in one bowl and then it goes into one tin and then you just simple decoration. So anyone can do it. <laughs> uh, so Martha, uh, how do we start? So we're going to start by lining the tin. And this is probably the, the most important step, because if you get this wrong, <laughs> because the Ooh, tin can decorates... I stop you one, can I stop you for one second? Uh, what if you don't have a bunt tin? Can you make this cake in any old tin? Is it, you know, Jimmy? You can. So I've put a little tip in my recipe, because ooh, obviously ooh. these tins are beautiful, but they are reasonably expensive. You can use them again and again, and they should last you a lifetime. So I'd say it's worth the investment but if you don't have one and you want to make this cake you can do it in a round sandwich tin you just want to cook it slightly less there's the instructions are as part of the recipe when you go onto the website to see how you make it great sorry sorry to interrupt the flow no, don't i worry. just suddenly i suddenly thought i don't have a bunt cake tin why, why am i how listening am I doing? to this <laughs> yeah. that's a really good point yeah you can make it as an ordinary sandwich loaf tin or you can do it in a oh, loaf okay. it's a really flexible cake recipe so you can make the cake in any tin but the bunt really does add a little a little bit of extra yeah. decoration 
So shut up, Graham. We're making it in a bunt tin. We all have a bunt tin, you know. So Get it out of the go. cupboard. Off you go. So we've lined, we've lined our bunt tin. That's how far we've got. So we were making for the bunt tin, basically, if you don't line it properly, you were going to end up with, because it does all the hard work in the oven, you will end up with a big pile of crumbs, and which would be a real shame. <laughs> no one can decorate that and make that look good. So I make this thing called a lining paste. Now this sounds complicated, but it's literally a mixture of soft butter or vegetable shortening, and then some plain flour and some vegetable oil. You mix that together until it forms a paste. Pop it in a little jar and keep this in the cupboard or in the fridge until you're making your next bundt cake because it makes a little bit more than the recipe. And then you just use a pastry brush to brush it into every little crease and crevice of that tin to make sure that it's going to turn out nicely when you finish the cake. So <laughs> that's where we start. Then we're going to move on. That is a on. great tip. Great tip. Okay, well, yep. Yeah, it does make a massive difference. And you can use it on regular cake tins as well. It just helps them to just release and pop out really, really nicely and cleanly. So then we're going to move on to the cake mixture. So it's a really simple cake mixture using vegetable oil and Greek yogurt to keep it really moist and really tender. So it has a good lasting time on it, the cake as well. It lasts about three to four days if you haven't munched through it in the first day, <laughs> which I feel like my family may do. But you want to <laughs> add, the, we're mixing together the oil, eggs and the yogurt with some caster sugar in a bowl until it's nice and smooth. Then we're adding into that the plain flour, a little bit of sea salt because we're using oil. You want to make sure you add salt to make sure your cake tastes has that kind of nice buttery flavor even though we're not using butter some baking powder for that rise and then the zest of one orange or blood orange if you can find them in season and some cardamom so for the cardamom you can buy this ground or if you've got the little pods you want to put them into a pestle and mortar break them open out that papery skin and get rid of that and then crush up the black seeds until they're nice and finely ground that will get yeah, mixed we're buying in. ground cardamom. I'll stop you there. We're, we're <laughs> buying ground cardamom. I'm not popping papery seeds. <laughs> Graham's like, no, I was following and now I'm out. <laughs> yeah. The pestle and what's come out of the cupboard as well as the bunting. So it's too many, too many new things for one day. Um, so that's your mixture done. Pour it into your tin. Then this is going to bake for about 45 to 50 minutes until a skewer inserted comes out clean. Then we're going to leave that to cool for 10 minutes and then turn it out whilst it's still warm. It should just pop out of your tin, revealing that lovely design and then to top it off we are going to make a really simple icing using blood orange juice so you can either if you can find these lovely blush or blood oranges they're regular oranges but they taste a little bit more kind of like cranberries and raspberries and they're only in season until april so get your hands on them now blood or blush oranges is what they're called in store but waitress also sell orange blood orange juice in a in a um, bottle so if you don't fancy wow. hunting them down you can buy that and it's worth doing because it creates this lovely pink icing which i think looks so pretty and um, so we take the blood orange juice we mix it with icing sugar until smooth drizzle that all over your cake and it will run down all of the little indentations in your bunt tin mold and then we're going to top it off with a few rose petals and a bit of orange zest and that's your cake and do you know what? Something about that icing, that kind of little, that hint of pink in it, it makes it does make it look kind of very feminine and very kind of, yeah, I can see Mother's Day all over it. <laughs> it's appropriate. Yeah. It's appropriate it for is. the day. <laughs> Absolutely gorgeous. It's a long old bake, 45, uh, 50 minutes. That's a, yeah, you're, it's you're a, in there for it's a while. It's a big cake, so it serves 12 people. So that's why it takes quite a while to cook all the way through. But because it's got that yogurt-based sponge, it should stay nice and moist and you shouldn't end up with any any dry bits. 
Well, if you're thinking to yourself, mm, I must make a bunt cake, perhaps a cardamom and blood orange bunt cake, then you'll need the recipe. The recipe can be found on the Graham North Waitrose Hub. That's on the Waitrose website, waitrose.com slash showchef. And you'll find this recipe as along with all of Martha's recipes. You could also check out the recipe and the visuals on our socials at Virgin Radio UK. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Martha. You can pop that in a tin and bring it to your mother now. <laughs> <laughs> Hop on down she'll, down the motorway to her. <laughs> uh, yeah, she'll she'll be waiting. She'll be waiting. Uh, now next week it's not a Mother's Day or anything. Is there anything special? Is it topical next week, or are we just we're just going back to normal savoury sweets? Do you know what? I'm actually not sure. I wonder if we might be hitting Easter next week. We might be starting the Ooh. Easter preparations. Oh yes, of course. I think there's a lot course. of sweets coming up in the future, Graham. <laughs> until we're over mm. that Easter chocolate hump. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. I've got my guest. Yes, he is co-written the new uh, rock opera, the Tony Blair rock opera. It's called Tony, capital letters, uh, exclamation mark. His name is Harry Hill. Oh, hello, Harry. Hello, Graham. What else, what else would you call it, really? You have to have an exclamation. If it's a musical, you have to stick an exclamation mark at the end, don't you? <laughs> Tony! <And> this, Tony! <laughs> and tell me this, is, is, it, is it, as they say in the business, sung through, or is there chatting no, in no, as No, no, well? no. No, otherwise that, that I wouldn't get any of my jokes in, because I don't write the, I don't write the songs, you see. I only write the um, the bits in between. So yeah, no, it's it's a musical, really. We called it a rock. We were going to call it a pop opera because it, we kind of think he's the first uh, pop um, prime minister. Is the sort of because he was in that band, you know, ugly, ugly rumours when he was in. Do you know? And you know all this, do you? Well, I, I've I've seen a picture of him with a guitar. Uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> no, I mean he was in a band. You know, he was in a genuinely in a band when he was at Oxford called uh, Ugly Rumours, and uh, and so we do. We kind of suggested he's like the p- first pop prime minister. If he hadn't gone into um, politics, he might well have been. You know, he wanted to be sort of like Mick Jagger in his in his early days. Basically, that was his big hero. And in terms and, of the story, do you do the call? Is it the rise and fall, or do you stop at a particularly triumphant moment? Well, it's you. Yeah, I mean, it depends whether you think there's been a fall. Of course, Graham. I think he's. Um, it starts with him on his deathbed, calling for a priest. You know he. <laughs> you know he. I'm in already. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> and it starts uh, with a kind of chorus. Um, Prepare to be made aware of the tale of the most successful Labour Premier. And his name it was Toho. Tony Blair. I don't sing. I'm not in it, I should say. <laughs> I'm not in it. They, Steve wouldn't let me be in it because um, he says I'm not a good enough singer. But, um, oh, yeah, so it starts there. <laughs> and then he, because, he, you know, he converted to Catholicism. He had, you know, after he, uh, he left the top job. Uh, and so he's calling for a priest. And then it's like his confession, basically. It's all told as a sort of flashback. Then at the end, he sort of says, he does his sort of uh, excuse, gives his big excuse. And his broadly his excuse is, look, I wasn't the worst one. I wasn't the best one. You know, the whole world is run by basically, uh, bad, you know, ropey people and it just happened that I was the one at the time <laughs> I, I was I was preparing to apologise for a swear word there and, I know uh, no, you, you, you swerved it you, it. you swerved it well done 
You you heard me. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a presumably it's a big cast because everyone's in it. Like Cherie Blair is in it, John Prescott, yeah. Peter Mandelson, they're all in it. Yes. Well, you're right. It should be a big cast, but it's very much down the budget. So um, if I'm honest, it's a lot of uh, wig changing. Uh, uh, and many of the wigs I bought from, uh, I don't know if you know the 24-hour party shop in <laughs> <laughs> which somehow managed to, to last through. Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, the spirit of it is like... Uh, fast and funny really you know i just try to make it as funny as possible and the thing is someone like john prescott is we've got a uh, rosie strobel who's a you know uh, a brilliant singer and a funny lady who's she's playing john prescott she also plays osama bin laden so you give the you get the idea that there is range a lot of range Very you have good. to get <laughs> you have to have range for this um and and Steve Brown, yeah, not, who wrote the music. Sorry, yeah, you, you, you've worked with Steve Brown a lot, haven't you? A lot, yes. We're the winning team that bought the world um, I Can't Sing, the X Factor musical, of course. Yes. And this is the best sort of tour, I guess, Harry, because you don't have to go. I know, I know. I mean, um, <laughs> it's the dream, isn't it? Money while you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I never, I never, I've never successfully managed to get anything off the ground where it, which I didn't have to be in. I don't know if you, you probably have you ever done anything you didn't have to. I suppose your books, in the books are good like that. Books are good like that, and also uh, repeats. You know, they sell repeats. the show around. The, yeah, that's yeah. all good. Yeah, because yeah. you kind of think, oh, I did yeah. that work already. I don't have to do it again. It's lovely. Yeah, sure, um, sure. And I think what people will be surprised at, what I was trying to say before, well, yes. while the Gremlins were in the works, is the that actually in that X Factor musical, the songs aren't jokes. I mean, they're really the music's fantastic. Yeah, well, Steve is really good. I mean, this is the man that wrote um, TV highlight of the week. <laughs> you know the jingle, <laughs> and he also wrote for Anton Deck Wonky Donkey. So you know, it's um, <laughs> he's blue chip. <laughs> You know, he's top of the... No, he did write a Spend... He did have a, a proper musical, Spend, 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 uh, which was a big uh, West End... Uh, had a good West End run. I mean, the X Factor musical, you know, it wasn't a big hit and it did lose a lot of money. I read in the paper the other day that it read... Uh, it lost £4 million, which came as a surprise to me because I was told it was six. It was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, it wasn't my money. You know, <laughs> but it was it was a good show, but just no one went to see it, Graham. Well, you know. we're we're trying to we're trying to make that sure that doesn't happen with Tony, the Tony yes, Blair Rock Opera. <laughs> <laughs> because how did this come about? Because you know, it, mm. because you know, we, we we the Harry Hill brand, we kind of think, oh, yeah. it's just you know, it's silly and it's very funny, but it's superficial froth. Well, in between in between <laughs> TV burp and spitting image, where would this rock opera lie? Yeah, well, I mean, I know what you mean, and um, I don't really have an answer for that. I mean, it's just you know what me, I just sort of do things that I that I think might be interesting or funny. I mean, the fact was after the uh, X Factor musical, which was so much fun, it's like the most fun I'd ever had. So it was really frustrating that it didn't run it because I came away thinking. Oh, you know, we're going to be uh, writing musicals left, right, and centre. This is going to be the the job now. You know, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be writing musicals full time. But in fact, uh, no one was interested <laughs> because of the, <laughs> it. Was the hard lesson I learned was that 
you know, success really is about money. You know, if you don't make money for people, that no one really necessarily wants to hire you again. So, um, so it has been a long journey to getting this, uh, this off the ground. Um, but it, the good thing about it is, it is a really, really funny show. And although there are serious moments, you know, as I've sort of alluded to, um, somehow we managed to get away with it uh, by laugh. We we do get away with the laughs, you know. I mean, the I've second half opens. Go on. Well, I was just going to say, do you have a sweepstake on uh, who the first person who's in it will be to come and see it? My money's on Alistair Campbell. Well, I think, yeah. Someone said to me that Tony hasn't got much of a sense of humour about it, but um, <laughs> Sherry has. Apparently Sherry <laughs> likes a laugh. Sherry, whatever. Um, and in fact, when we did it, when we did it at the Park Theatre where it was... You know, it, it went really well. I mean, that that the Park Theatre in Finsbury Park. I don't know if you know it, but it's mm. it's it was good for us because it was like a labour heartland, and there was a there was a kebab shop opposite, uh, which had a big banner up saying "Reinstate Jeremy Corbyn." <laughs> so it was quite <laughs> it was it was quite a funny um, place to do it. And it, it, her sister, Sherry Blair's sister, who I think is what is she? She's sort of a mind. Was she on Big Brother or something? Oh, yeah, she's a bit of a loose yeah. cannon. I can't remember her name. That's uh, right. Yeah, yes. we'll just call her and loose the, the, cannon. And the father's the actor, the father was the actor, and yes, it's all Tony Booth, yeah. 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 Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. she uh, did ask for tickets. I mean, we always put tickets on the door for Tony, uh, but so far they've gone unclaimed. I mean, I would yeah, say I mean, if you... your name is Tony Blair, but you're not the actual Tony Blair, there are two tickets for you. You could get those tickets. <laughs> <laughs> but you are going to Sedgefield, aren't you? You're going... I won't be, but yeah, the show is. <laughs> no, I might go to that one. It's, the, yeah, we're doing the parish, uh, like the parish rooms or the sort of little town hall in Sedgefield, which, of course, where it was where he had his first triumph. Where he was selected as uh, Labour MP. That's where his uh, political journey starts. And we're doing that just to be as a sort of stunt. We're also going to be, I think we're going to be in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference and we're going to be in Manchester for the uh, Tory one. So we're sort of following them around, poking them with a stick as they go. This is, it's smart. It's smart marketing. It is. Uh, the the tickets and info, tickets and info, Tony Blair, rockopera.co.uk. Uh, it's yeah. in the West End from 15th of April. Then it's touring and then it's in Edinburgh and it ends up in Salford. Uh, Harry, thank you so much for joining us this morning. See you all soon. Right, good luck with it all. Take care Thanks. now. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Come on, baby, tell me what's the word I word Oh, yeah. Our competition word up is back. Uh, this is your chance to win a Graham Norton with Waitrose gift box. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, that's got the balsamic vinegar in it, all sorts. Uh, champagne, the reusable cup, uh, lots of delicious things. Uh, now, what is you're looking for the missing word in a clip? It's from an interview with Roger Daltrey that we're playing tonight at 7 o'clock on our Virgin Radio Classic Artist Roger Daltrey special. So, uh, first up is, is it Deb or Debbie? It's Debbie. Debbie, hello, Debbie. And where are hello. you? I'm in Beverly in East Yorkshire. Oh, lovely. And what have you got planned for your Sunday in uh, Beverly? I'm going to work in half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. What do you do for a living, Debbie? I'm currently working at the NHS. 
bank right, so gas. So. Right, so a long, a long old shift. So it'd be great if we could cheer you up with a lovely uh, Waitrose gift box with all those goodies inside. Um, oh, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play you the clip again. You're looking for two words, and what I would say is, Debbie, don't overthink it. We're not trying to trip you up. We're not trying to make it really hard for you. If you think it's easy, it is easy. So uh, here we go. Uh, Debbie and Beverly, uh, listen to this. I didn't want to become a film star. All of a sudden, I'm a film star, and I'm thinking, I just want to be the singer of... <laughs> <laughs> okay, what are the two missing words, Debbie? Is it The Who? Is it The Who? Who? Let's find out if you're right. I didn't want to become a film star. All of a sudden, I'm a film star, and I'm thinking, I just want to be the singer of The Who. <laughs> <laughs> oh! oh. A nation rejoices, uh, Beverly in East Yorkshire. Well, hopefully that will make your shift go by a little faster because you're thinking, ooh, I'm a winner. I'm a winner, baby. Um, uh, congratulations. Anyone you'd like to say hello to while you're on the radio, Debbie? Just all my friends and anyone who knows me. All right. I feel terrible now. You have to go to work in half an hour, but there you go. <laughs> at least, at least you've given you a lovely, a lovely gift a box. Better. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad we we're able to help you out. Uh, well played, Debbie. Thank you very much. Take care now. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. And hey, have you clicked that follow button on all of our socials? Just look up at Virgin Radio UK on all platforms to see everything from gorgeous dishes to Graham's guides. That's it for now. Speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio.